Mr. President, distinguished senators, my name is David Cicilline. I have the honor of representing the 1st Congressional District of Rhode Island. As I hope is now clear from the arguments of Mr. Raskin and Mr. Neguse, impeachment is not merely about removing someone from office. Fundamentally, impeachment exists to protect our constitutional system, to keep each of us safe, to uphold our freedom, to safeguard our democracy. It achieves that by deterring abuse of the extraordinary power that we entrust to our presidents from the very first day in office to the very last day. It also ensures accountability for presidents who harm us or our government. In the aftermath of a tragedy, it allows us an opportunity to come together and to heal by working through what happened and reaffirming our constitutional principles. And it authorizes this body and this body alone to disqualify from our political system anybody whose conduct in office proves that they present a danger to the republic. But impeachment would fail to achieve these purposes if you created for the first time ever, despite the words of the framers and the Constitution, a January exception, as Mr. Raskin explained. Now, I was a former defense lawyer for many years, and I can understand why President Trump and his lawyers don't want you to hear this case, why they don't want you to see the evidence. But the argument that you lack jurisdiction rests on a purely fictional loophole, purely fictional, designed to allow the former president to escape all accountability for conduct that is truly indefensible under our Constitution. You saw the consequences of his actions on the video that we played earlier. I'd like to emphasize in still greater detail the extraordinary constitutional offense that the former president thinks you have no power whatsoever to adjudicate. While spreading lies about the election outcome and a brazen attempt to retain power against the will of the American people, he incited an armed, angry mob to riot. And not just anywhere, but here, in the seat of our government, in the Capitol, during a joint session of Congress, when the Vice President presided while we carried out the peaceful transfer of power which was interrupted for the first time in our history. This was a disaster of historic proportion. It was also an unforgivable betrayal of the oath of office of President Trump, the oath he swore, an oath that he sullied and dishonored to advance his own personal interests. And make no mistake about it, as you think about that day, things could have been much worse. As one senator said, they could have killed all of us. It was only the bravery and sacrifice of the police who suffered deaths and injuries as a result of President Trump's actions that prevented greater tragedy. At trial, we will prove with overwhelming evidence that President Trump is singularly and directly responsible for inciting the assault on the Capitol. 
We will also prove that his dereliction of duty, his desire to seek personal advantage from the mayhem, and his decision to issue tweets further inciting the mob, attacking the vice president, all compounded the already enormous damage. Now, virtually every American who saw those events unfold on television was absolutely horrified by the events of January 6th. But we also know how President Trump himself felt about the attack. He told us. Here's what he tweeted at 6.01, as the Capitol was in shambles and as dozens of police officers and other law enforcement officers lay battered and bruised and bloodied. Here's what he said. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. Every time I read that tweet, it chills me to the core. The President of the United States sided with the insurrectionists. He celebrated their cause. He validated their attack. He told them, remember this day forever. Hours after they marched through these halls looking to assassinate Vice President Pence, the Speaker of the House, and any of us they could find. Given all that, it's no wonder that President Trump would rather talk about jurisdiction and a supposed January exception, rather than talk about what happened on January 6th. Make no mistake, his arguments are dead wrong. They're distractions from what really matters. The Senate can and should require President Trump to stand trial. My colleagues have already addressed many of President Trump's efforts to escape trial. I'd like to cover the remainder then address the broader issues at stake in this trial. For starters, in an extension of his mistaken reading of the Constitution, President Trump insists that he cannot face trial in the Senate because he's merely a private citizen. He references here the Bill of Attainder Clause. But as Mr. Neguse just explained, the Constitution refers to the defendant in an impeachment trial as a person and a party, and certainly he counts as one of those. Let's also apply some common sense. There's a reason that he now insists on being called the 45th president of the United States rather than citizen Trump. He isn't a randomly selected private citizen. He's a former officer of the United States government. He's a former president of the United States of America. He's treated differently under a law called the Former Presidents Act for four years. We trusted him with more power than anyone else on earth. As a former president who promised on a Bible to use his power faithfully, he can and should answer for whether he kept that promise while bound by it in office. His insistence otherwise is just wrong. And so, so is this claim that there's a slippery slope uh, to impeaching private citizens if you proceed. The trial of a former official for abuses he committed as an official, arising from an impeachment that occurred while he was an official, 
poses absolutely no risk whatsoever of subjecting a private citizen to impeachment for their private conduct. To emphasize the point, President Trump was impeached while he was in office for conduct in office, period. The alternative, once again, is this January exception, in which our most powerful officials can commit the most terrible abuses and then resign to leave office and suddenly claim that they're just a private citizen who can't be held accountable at all. In the same vein, President Trump and his lawyers argue that he shouldn't be impeached because it will set a bad precedent for impeaching others. But that slippery slope argument is also incorrect. For centuries, the prevailing view has been that former officials are subject to impeachment. And you just heard a full discussion of that. The House has repeatedly acknowledged that fact. But in the vast majority of cases, the House has rightly recognized that an official's resignation or departure makes the extraordinary step of impeachment unnecessary and maybe even unwise. As a House manager rightly explained in the Belknap case, and I quote, there is no likelihood that we shall ever unlimber the clumsy and bulky monster piece of ordinance to take aim at an object from which all danger has gone by, end quote. President Trump's case, though, is different. The danger has not gone by. His threat to democracy makes any prior abuse by any government official pale in comparison. Moreover, allowing his conduct to pass without the most decisive response would itself create an extraordinary danger to the nation. Inviting further abuse of power and signaling that the Congress of the United States is unable or unwilling to respond to insurrection incited by the president. Think about that. To paraphrase Justice Robert Jackson, who said that press, that precedent that I just described would lie about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any future president who decided in his final months to make a play for unlimited power. Think of the danger. Here is the rare case in which love of the Constitution and commitment to our democracy required the House to impeach. And it's for the same reason the Senate can and must try this case. Next, President Trump will assert that he, it somehow is significant or it matters uh, that the Chief Justice isn't presiding over this trial. Let me state this very plainly. It does not matter. It is not significant. Under Article 1, Section 3, when the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. There is only one person who is President of the United States at a time. Right now, Joseph R. Biden, Jr., is the 46th President of the United States. As a result, the requirement that the Chief Justice preside isn't triggered. Instead, the normal rules of any impeachment of anyone other than the sitting President apply. And under those rules, the president pro tem, Senator Leahy, can preside. And of course, this makes perfect sense. The chief justice presides because when the current president is on trial, if he, chief justice, doesn't preside, the vice president could preside. And it would be a conflict for someone to preside over a trial that would become president if there was a conviction. So there isn't that concern when you have a former president on trial, or for the matter, when you have anyone on trial other than the current president.
which is why the Chief Justice presides only in that single case, and why this is exactly the presiding officer the Constitution and the Senate rules require. As a fallback, President Trump and his lawyers may argue today that he should get a free pass on inciting an armed insurrection against the United States government and endangering Congress because, as he would put it, this impeachment is somehow unconstitutional. So far as I understand it from reading the pleadings in this case, this defense involves cobbling together a bunch of meritless legal arguments, all of them attempting to focus on substance rather than jurisdiction, and insisting that these kitchen sink objections lead the Senate to not try the case. Since they may raise these points at this juncture, I feel obliged really to address them. He may argue, for example, that he didn't receive enough process in the House. Even though the House proceedings are more like a grand jury action, which is followed later by trial in the Senate with a full presentation of evidence. Even though the evidence of his high crimes and misdemeanors is overwhelming and supported by a huge public record. Even though we're going to put that evidence before you at this trial. And even though we'll have a full and fair opportunity to respond to it before all of you. Even though hundreds of others involved in the events of January 6th have already been charged for their role in attacks uh, that the president incited, and even though we invited him to voluntarily come here and testify and tell his story, a request, as you know, that his lawyers immediately refused, presumably because they understood what would happen if he were to testify under oath. Regardless, President Trump's process arguments are not only wrong on their own terms, but they're also completely irrelevant to the question of whether you should hold this trial. That question is answered by the Constitution, and the answer is yes. In addition, separate from his due process uh, complaints, President Trump and his counsel, have, particularly his counsel, have boasted on TV that to counter the undisputed evidence of what actually happened in this case, you'll see video clips. They'll show video clips of other politicians including Democratic politicians, using what they consider incendiary language. Apparently, they think this will establish some sort of equivalency, or that it will show in contrast that President Trump's statements at the Save the America rally weren't so bad. Like so much of what President Trump's lawyers might say today, that's a gimmick. It's a parlor game meant to inflame partisan hostility and play on our divisions. So let me be crystal clear. President Trump was not impeached because of the words he used, viewed in isolation, without context, were beyond the pale. Plenty of other politicians have used strong language. But Donald J. Trump was President of the United States. He sought to overturn a presidential election that had been upheld by every single court to consider it. He spent months insisting to his base that the only way he could lose was a dangerous, wide-ranging conspiracy against them and America itself. He relentlessly attempted to persuade his followers that the peaceful transfer of power that was taking place in the Capitol was an abomination that had to be stopped at all costs. 
He flirted with groups like the Proud Boys telling them to stand back and stand by while endorsing violence and sparking death threats to his opponents. He summoned an armed, angry, and dangerous crowd that wanted to keep him in power and was widely reported to be poised on a hair trigger for violence at his direction. He then made his heated statements in circumstances where it was clear, where it was foreseeable that those statements would spark extraordinary, imminent violence. He then failed to defend the Capitol, the Congress, and the Vice President during the insurrection, engaging in extraordinary dereliction of duty and desertion of duty that was only possible because of the high office he held. He issued statements during the insurrection, targeting the vice president and reiterating the very same lies about the election that had launched the violence in the first place. And he issued a tweet five hours after the Capitol was sacked in which he sided with the bad guys. We all know that context matters, that office and meaning and intent and consequences matter. Simply put, it matters when and where and how we speak. The oaths we sworn and the power we hold matter. President Trump was not impeached because he used words that the House decided are forbidden or unpopular. He was impeached for inciting armed violence against the government of the United States of America. This leads me to a few final thoughts about why it's so important for you to hear this case as authorized and as indeed required by our history and by the Constitution. President Trump's lawyers will say, I expect, that you should dismiss this case so that the country can move on. They'll assert that this impeachment is partisan and that the spirit of bipartisanship and bipartisan cooperation requires you, us to drop the case and march forward in unity. With all due respect, every premise and every conclusion of that argument is wrong. Just weeks ago, weeks ago, the President of the United States literally incited an armed attack on the Capitol, our seat of government, while seeking to retain power by subverting an election he lost and then celebrated the attack. People died. People were brutally injured. President Trump's actions endangered every single member of Congress, his own vice president, thousands of congressional staffers, and our own Capitol Police and other law enforcement. This was a national tragedy, a disaster for America's standing in the world. And President Trump is singularly responsible for inciting it. As we will prove, the attack on the Capitol was not solely the work of extremists lurking in the shadows. Indeed, does anyone in this chamber honestly believe that but for the conduct of President Trump, that that a charge in the article of impeachment, that that attack at the Capitol would have occurred? Does anybody believe that? 
And now his lawyers will come before you and insist. Even as the capital is still surrounded with barbed wires and fences and soldiers, that we should just move on. Let bygones be bygones. And allow President Trump to walk away without any accountability, any reckoning, any consequences. That cannot be right. That is not unity. That's the path to fear of what future presidents could do. So there's a good reason why this article of impeachment passed the House with bipartisan support. The principles at stake belong to all Americans from all walks of life. We have a common interest in making clear that there are lines nobody can cross, especially the President of the United States. And so we share an interest in this trial where the truth can be shown and where President Trump can be called to account for his offenses. William Faulkner famously wrote that the past is never dead. But this isn't even the past. This just happened. It's still happening. Look around you as you come to the Capitol and come to work. I really do not believe that our attention span is so short, that our sense of duty is so frail, our factional loyalty is so all-consuming, that the president can provoke an attack on Congress itself and get away with it just because it occurred near the end of his term. After a betrayal like this, there cannot be unity without accountability. And this is exactly what the Constitution calls for. The framers' original understanding, the chambers, this chamber's own precedent, and the very words used in the Constitution all confirm unquestionably, indisputably, that President Trump must stand trial for his high crimes and misdemeanors against the American people. We must not, we cannot continue down the path of partisanship and division that has turned the Capitol into an armed fortress. Senators, it now falls to you to bring our country together by holding this trial, and once all the evidence is before you, by delivering justice.